0: In a new poll, Americans want Congress to tackle inflation, preserve democracy, and address immigration. They also want their leaders to compromise. With a divided government in Washington, here's to hoping. I'm Ian Martinez, that's Rob Schmitz, and this is Up First from NPR News. Peru's new government has declared a 30-day national emergency after deadly protests
1: over the ouster of President Pedro Castillo.
0: Can authorities re-establish order?
1: Incoming Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is expected to form the most right wing and religious government in the country's history. They're joining me. I'm not joining them. I'll have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. What else does Netanyahu have to say? Stay with us. We'll give you the news you need to start your day.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Finding sales sluggish? Discover Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Customize your online store to your brand. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash upfirst.
1: A new NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll out today finds Americans want their leaders to compromise. But while that's the hope, the poll shows they don't have much confidence
0: it'll actually happen.
1: Joining us to talk about this and more is NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro, who has all the numbers as usual. Good morning, Domenico. Hey, Rob. Domenico, there will be a new Congress sworn in in just a few weeks. Is
2: the idea of compromise even likely? Well, people say often that they want compromise, but usually they want the other side to compromise with them. <laughs> you know, yeah, that's what I the, thought you would say. But the finding in this poll was striking because it wasn't a small number who are saying so. Seventy-four percent say they want members of Congress to compromise rather than stand on principle, which is actually the highest level we've seen in a decade. Uh, we're headed into divided government here in Washington, and it's notable that people want, as one re- Republican respondent who wanted to see compromise, told me, members of Congress to, quote, stop acting like children. Uh, But the incentives in Congress tend to lean in the opposite direction. You know, for example, Republican leader Kevin McCarthy wants to be speaker and to get 218 votes from his conference to get there. He's probably going to have to make some steep concessions to the far right, not the middle, most likely. And those realities and what we've seen over the past decade or so isn't really engendering hope of compromise. Uh, 58 percent in the poll say they have no confidence the parties will do so. Uh, People have become far more pessimistic about their leaders. In 2008, it was only 23% that said they had no confidence. Hmm. So a huge shift here. And it's been Republicans who have been the least likely to compromise or want compromise. Does the poll say anything about what people want Congress to do? overall, they want Congress to tackle inflation. You know, it's still a top concern. That's followed by preserving democracy and immigration, which has seen a surge. But Republicans and Democrats, I have to tell you, seem like they're coming from Mars or Venus or some other planets, (laughs) because when it comes to the issues, they're pretty far apart. I mean, take immigration and climate change, for example. Republicans think immigration should be a top priority, though likely not in the kind of comprehensive way that Democrats want or is needed. But only 1% of Democrats think it should be a priority. On the other hand, Democrats think climate change should be a top priority, but only 1% of Republicans do. So very far apart on their concerns, which makes compromise all the more difficult.
1: That's right. And we've also heard so much after these midterm elections about what the results mean for President Biden. And for that matter, former President Trump, who has already announced that he's running again, what does the poll say about how people feel about them?
2: Well, neither of them have the majority support of potential voters in their respective primaries. Majorities say they'd prefer to have someone else And yet both are the front runners still at this point to get the nominations again. Biden, for example, has just 35% who say that they'd prefer that he ran in 2024 as their standard bearer, but they don't seem to love any of the other alternatives. You know, Vice President Kamala Harris, for example, gets just 17%. Pete Buttigieg, the uh, transportation secretary, gets only 16%. On the Republican side, despite all the buzz around Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and it is very real. You know, Republican primary voters say they'd prefer Trump over DeSantis 46 to 33%, with former Vice President Pence getting just 8%. So it really just shows that, like in 2016, a crowded field really is Trump's best friend. And that is a big thing that a lot of people are pointing to, even as Republican primary voters continue to say that they're unsure of Trump and that he maybe doesn't have the best political skills or help the party in the last few elections.
1: That's NPR's Domenico Montanaro. Thank you. You're welcome. Protests continue in Peru over the removal of President Pedro Castillo a week ago. On Wednesday, Castillo's replacement, his former vice president, Dina Boluarte, declared a national emergency for 30 days to try to get things under control. At least
0: seven people have died in the protest, which broke out shortly after Castillo was arrested on rebellion charges when he moved to disband the Congress, which was trying to impeach him for a third
1: time. Associated Press reporter Regina Cano joins us this morning from Lima. Good morning, Regina.
3: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
1: So explain what this state of emergency is supposed to do.
3: Sure. So the country's latest government has truly struggled to calm down this violent protest, particularly in rural areas that are far from the capital, Lima. So the declaration is meant to give the government the ability to act faster and with stronger force, right? So Hmm. it suspends some of people's rights, including the ability to to assemble, to protest, um, to move freely, so they can't really go out into the streets like like they've done before. And it also gives the authorities the ability to search people's homes without permission or judicial order. And so that that, that is key to this, and also the fact that the armed forces um, will begin to assist um, the national police in securing certain infrastructure like airports that you know some of which have been or have had to suspend activities because of the protests in the past few days. So
1: police are now given the right to search people's homes when they want to. I mean that sounds like just sweeping powers. Is there any way to tell so far whether this is having any effect on protests?
3: Um, I think we will really see that um, today um, some of the I mean we can already see a military presence in certain in certain areas where um, the protests have been particularly violent um, but a test to this will really be today. After you know we hear the decision from a judge regarding Castillo's detention for for possible detention for eighteen months,
1: what do you think we'll see today?
3: I think you know yesterday when the hearing began, we were already seeing people assembling outside um, the jail where Castillo is being held. So, you know, it will likely happen again. He has called on his supporters to gather there. So, um, I think that will truly be a test um, to see whether authorities will respond quickly and with, with a stronger force than, than they've had in the past.
1: So, Boluarte was Castillo's vice president, but the protesters want her out of office, and Congress does not appear to have much confidence in her either. What's the outlook on her political prospects?
3: Um, n- not great. Um, she's really going to have to work hard on um, getting along with Congress. She has no supporters um, at the moment. And so she will really have to um, work with them if she wants to, to survive. Um, here, Congress does not hesitate to flex their impeachment powers. In 2020, the country had three presidents in one week. So it, it really will depend on her ability.
1: That's Regina Garcia Cano of the Associated Press. Thanks. Thank you. Israel's longest-serving prime minister expects to be back in power soon.
0: Benjamin Netanyahu led his party to success in recent elections. He did that despite an ongoing trial for alleged corruption during his last time in power. So he's likely to become prime minister for the third time, as long as he can assemble a majority of Israel's fragmented parliament. And that effort has drawn widespread criticism because the conservative leader has made allies of far-right and extremist figures. In an NPR interview, Netanyahu offered his most detailed defense yet of his alliance with a convicted extremist who now in line to oversee Israeli police.
1: Netanyahu spoke with our colleague Steve Inskeep, who joins me now. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Rob. Who is this convicted extremist?
4: His name is Itamar Ben-Gavir, and our colleague Daniel Astrin, who's based in, in Israel, calls him Israel's most polarizing far-right politician. Hmm. You mentioned the conviction. It's in 2007. He was convicted of supporting an anti-Arab group that has been labeled a terrorist organization. Um, In the past, he's talked of expelling Arabs from Israel. Now, they are about 20% of the population who identify as Palestinian. He said Arabs in Israel's parliament were disloyal. Uh, In fairness, many of those remarks were years ago. But just this year in a TV interview, he said, quote, disloyal
1: Arabs should be expelled from their country. This just sounds extreme. How does Netanyahu defend this?
4: Um, in part by saying that Ben Gavir is a politician who will work for him, Netanyahu, who doesn't hold those views necessarily. In our interview, Netanyahu said he's going to make the policy decisions, not the far-right figures. They're joining me. I'm not joining them. I'll have two hands firmly on the steering wheel. But, Rob, there is a more specific question about why this particular person, Ben Gavir, would get the specific job that he's in line for. What makes him valuable as head of the police, of all things? Well, I think one of the things that uh, uh, that we've seen is the erosion of internal security in Israel. Uh, it's a big, big issue. I have to say his party ran on that. Uh, he says, I want to be tested. I think I can bring security to Arabs and Jews alike, the Arab citizens and Jewish citizens alike. Uh, that was his campaign promise. We have a coalition. Uh, I said, you'll you're go- be given the chance. You'll be given the tools. You better do the job. Uh, and I think that uh, time will see. Now, I I asked him, should Palestinian citizens of Israel really trust this person to oversee the police? And the prime minister-designate said, he doesn't expect people to trust anybody's promises, but wait and see what they do. And he's saying the same about a far-right figure in his coalition who's questioned the rights of people who identify
1: as LGBTQ. Wow. We we mentioned Netanyahu is about to be prime minister for the third time. He already served 15 years, more than anybody since Israel was founded. What's his place in Israel's history?
4: It is large, and he's working to give his own idea of that. He just published a memoir called Bibi, which is his nickname. Um, he talks of building Israeli relations in recent years as prime minister with Arab nations like the UAE and Morocco and Sudan, which really is a historic achievement of... Although in building those alliances, he's explicitly gone around the Palestinians who are much closer to home. Of course, Israel has occupied the West Bank since a war in 1967. Now, when we spoke, Netanyahu talked of improving Palestinian lives, but not allowing them an equal say in their own security. So he will inherit a conflict that is even longer than his long career. Steve Inskeep, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>
1: And we have one more story for you this morning. The Federal Reserve raised interest rates on Wednesday for the seventh time in the last nine months in its continuing effort to get inflation under control. November's inflation rate was 7 percent, down from
0: June's four-decade high of 9 percent, which shows inflation is cooling. But while yesterday's rate hike of half a percentage point was smaller than the last four, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell is determined to get inflation back to the 2 percent that it's been
1: for decades. Of course, we welcome these better inflation reports for the last two months. They're very welcome. It's good to see progress, but let's just understand we have a long ways to go to get back to price stability. Of course, higher borrowing costs on things like home and car loans or carrying a balance on a credit card are having an effect on the economy. The central bank is already forecasting slower growth next year and slightly higher unemployment. But Powell says he's hopeful we won't see a huge number of job cuts. Generally, companies want to hold on to the workers they have because it's been very, very hard to hire. That doesn't sound like a labor market where a lot of people will need to be put out of work.
0: What really concerns the Fed is the rising cost of services. That's largely driven by the cost of labor and wage increases, which have made the resulting price increases sticky. For example, the price of haircuts rose 6.8 percent in the last 12 months and dry cleaning jumped 7.9 percent. Here's Pal again.
1: The goods inflation has turned pretty quickly now after not turning at all for a year and a half. Now it seems to be turning. But there's an expectation really that the services inflation will will not move down so quickly so we may have to raise rates higher. Fed policymakers now think their benchmark interest rate will top out next year at just over 5%. And that's up first for Thursday, December 15th. I'm Rob Schmidt. Anime Martinez. Up
0: first is produced by Nina Kravinsky and Ben Abrams. Our editors are Natalie Shahar and John Helton. Zach Coleman is our technical director, and Carly Strange and Trey Watson provided engineering support. And as always, start your day here with us tomorrow.
1: Ready for more NPR news? There's a radio show for that. Find NPR's Morning Edition on your NPR station at stations.npr.org.